Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson. We have an incredible show lined up for you today about a really important film that um, has debuted recently. Um, it debuted in the um, Outfest Los Angeles Film Festival. Um, I believe there are other film festivals it's going to be appearing in. It is a film called Jemel and Tim. Um, it centers on a crime that got notoriety, although it didn't get notoriety in a way that you might expect, where a crime is committed and boom, media comes around it and there's a story to tell. It is one that was hidden away, um, it, it developed, it got exposed, um, there are elements that were trying to cover it up, um, and we're talking about the murders of um, young black men by Politico Ed Buck of West Hollywood. And it's been fictionalized. Um, L.A. Law did kind of their, not based on real life, quote unquote, but based on real life take on it. Um, people have talked about it. And now um, there's a documentary film about it. The documentary film takes a tact that is similar to the film that Whoopi Goldberg uh, has produced on Emmett Till, which is to not focus on the sensational front end violent parts of the story, but to take us to the real people involved and tell us about their lives and give us an accurate portrait of who they were. And then as a backdrop, um, the horror that happened to them. The film is called Jamel and Tim, um, and it is focused on the lives of Jamel Moore and Tim Roy Dean. They were the two black men who both died from meth overdoses in the home of West Hollywood political Ed Buck. And their, their deaths were part of a sexual agenda on the part of Ed Buck and um, using his position of wealth to bring men in and put them through basically a humiliation profile um, and which involved um, meth and injections and ultimately caused the death of these two men. Um, the film is was made by um, a brilliant filmmaker, uh, Michelle Thomas, um, Michel is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's made three films, and each one of them has been pretty much of a sensation. His first documentary was a film called Game Face. Uh, his second documentary is a film called That's Wild. And now um, this film is his third. And so he's obviously a talent in terms of the realm of filmmaking, uh, making impacts across the board. And we're going to find out more about him in just a minute. Um, before that, though, I do want to welcome onto the show the co-host, um, 
and also the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Lebeck. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, and good day to all of our listeners, like wherever you're at. We appreciate you so much. Go to Apple, download us, or however you get your podcast. Listen. Uh, we really, really seriously appreciate uh, you guys so, so much. Um, today, the, the very first thing that I want to make note of uh, is today is Spirit Day, and I hope all of you are wearing purple. Um, Spirit Day uh, was founded and created in 2010 by a grade 10 uh, high school student in my home province of Ontario, Brittany McMillan. And uh, she created the event in 2010 because we had a virtual pandemic of LGBTQ youth that were killing themselves that year. Um, It was horrible. Um, At the time, I was working for Reuters. I was also the Washington Bureau Chief of LGBTQ Nation magazine. And it really was just um, one day after the other of just writing these stories of these kids killing themselves. It was just too much. And Brittany, bless her, uh, in a uniquely Canadian solution, said, no, we're, we're going to do something. We're going to wear purple, and, and we're going we're gonna to make a statement. Well, GLAD uh, went ahead and really backed her up, supported her, pumped her up, and then they took it over, and it's been an annual event uh, ever since. Um, the reason we call it Spirit Day, and, and Brittany did it, was because if you look at the LGBTQ pride or progressive uh, pride flags, you'll notice that there, of course, obviously is the purple stripe among the rainbow colors. And that particular stripe uh, symbolizes spirit. So the message is spirit, and it's, it's, it's really clear. We're supporting LGBTQ youth. We're opposing bullying in any shape or form. Uh, and we're doing it uh, because it's the type of thing that we need to do on a basically a daily basis uh, year round, especially as you know our trans brothers and sisters and our kids, all of our queer kids right now, particularly in the states of Texas, Oklahoma, and Florida, are under literal siege by adults who should know better. Uh, and, and yes, I'm pointing the finger at you, Governor Stitt, Oklahoma, you, Governor Abbott of Texas, and especially you, Ron DeSantis, you know, the governor of Florida. You three people are just abject failures, okay, as human beings for marginalizing, attacking, okay, and really bullying, you know, LGBTQ people, but more importantly, our kids who have done nothing to you. And the nice thing is, our kids are fighting back. So hats off to Gen Z. You guys are amazing. You're incredible. Some of you have been on the show. I'm so proud of all of you. Um, you know, quick shout out to, you know, Jack Petz and Cameron and Alyssa and Flagler. Uh, Will down there in the Orlando area, Winter Park, bless you. Xander over there in Sarasota, well done. Tyler, I know you're listening today up in Sarasota, in the, I mean, in New York State, rather. Go get them, Tyler, and all of you Gen Zers, and of course one of my Brody brats who I love the pieces, and I know is listening today. Landon Ritchie, transact is extraordinaire from Houston, Texas. You're just a teenage wonder kind, and much love and shout out to you, Landon. 
So today's Spirit Day. Wear your Brody, purple. Brody, yeah. Brody, let me ask you, how is Spirit Day, to your knowledge, playing out in Florida where they have that horrible, you know, don't say gay um, law, but um, environment that they've imposed on the school system there? Are people being intimidated or are they probably wearing their purple? They are wearing their purple. <laughs> they are flaunting and being fabulous with their uh, with their purple. And, again, why I gave the shout-out a couple minutes ago to the kids in Florida, you know, all of you kids, just well done, guys. You know, um, just, you know, fight the good fight, keep it going. You know, we're very, very proud of all of you kids. Um, you know, you guys are amazing, and, and it's just it's so good to see this. Um, and, you know, this is kind of important, it, especially today of all days, because, you know, we need to make sure that we are there, you know, for these kids. Um, unfortunately, sadly, uh, Gleason just released um, its annual National School Climate Survey. Um, there will be uh, a piece by uh, our intrepid columnist, uh, James Finn, in a, about an hour here at the Los Angeles Blade Magazine. Go read Jim's piece. Um, the results aren't good, uh, and people really need to know, you know, the bottom line. U.S. schools are becoming more hostile for LGBTQ students. So um, we need to point that out uh, as well, Rob. Um, and, uh, yeah, is, so is that's the article on that today. Brody, is the article yeah. going to point out what the effect of this hostility is? I mean, are numbers of um, mental health challenges and suicides going up as a result? Yes. I mean, the, the report is pretty comprehensive, uh, and it goes through the, uh, the trends, and the results are pretty pretty grim. Um, you know, it just, uh, you know, two of the things that the survey highlighted, because it was going back over the last five or six years, starting in 2017, you know, the victimization based on gender expression, you know, nearly doubled. In 2019, verbal and physical harassment and assault were pervasive. Um, was a little bit hard because, as you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic and everybody was on lockdown, but there was still online bullying and online, uh, you know, things that took place during the pandemic uh, for our queer kids that was, you know, were pretty bad. But the report's fairly comprehensive, but uh, Jim's uh, article uh, will be up on it in about an hour here. Uh, go read it. Uh, wear your purple today. Um, this is really... This is really key, key, key areas that uh, we need to hone in on, Rob. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, definitely read the article. So what's happening in Britain? Um, I think I blinked, and um, now they're on their way for a new, brand-new prime minister. Yeah, England's becoming a little bit of a mess. Uh, the U.K. prime minister, uh, Liz Truss, stepped out of the famous black door at number 10 this morning and announced – I'm done. I'm quitting, which, of course, has thrown the conservative, also known as the Tory power, uh, party, uh, into an uproar. Uh, trust has proven to be no friend to, you know, our community at all whatsoever, uh, especially with the conversion therapy ban and particularly on transgender rights and issues. Um, so, you know, many of the British activists uh, that I've spoken to this morning, 
uh, have taken the news of the prime minister resigning with a don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out kind of <laughs> attitude. Uh, so, you know, a lot remains to be seen. Uh, the Tory party is in turmoil. And then to make matters even more entertaining, the former prime minister who was actually ousted by the Tories uh, and who was replaced by uh, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, now he wants his job back. So, yeah, uh, stay tuned for developments over there. For Britain's queer community in particular and the transgender community, um, the Tory control of government right now has been a disaster. Trust has been a disaster even before she took over as prime minister. Uh, Johnson was a hot mess. Uh, so we don't anticipate much of a change there. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, it's it's a arc towards the right that we're seeing all over the world, Rob. What does that have to say about the social um, uh, politics of Britain that these people are even in there in the first place? Um, my sort of distant take from it is that um, Britain seems to be even more transphobic in a way than the United States is. Is that the case? Um, you know, is there kind of a Trump-ish faction in Britain that is uh, putting these people in place? What What is behind all that? That's actually a fair comparison. Um, there is a lot of things that, you know, the Americans obviously don't see because it's not part of what they do. A lot of the transphobia is an import from the United States. It's the Americans. Uh, specifically the American hate groups, uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, the World Congress of Families, and, you know, basically the entire turf crowd. Now, that has also been um, had fuel to the fire, I guess, or petrol on the flame added by homegrown celebrities uh, who've turned out to be absolute, you know, enemies of the trans community and questionable allies. And, of course, I'm speaking of uh, Scottish writer J.K. Rowling, uh, who's turned out to be probably the biggest turf on the planet. And sadly, for the transgender population in Scotland, Wales, England, and Ireland, in Northern Ireland, the woman's got money. So it's awfully hard to just shut her up because she can write checks uh, to these organizations to keep the hate going. Um, she basically has defined herself as a turf and pretty much, yeah, she's slimy. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it happens, you know, sometimes. Uh, the people that we think we know and love the best end up to be the biggest assholes on the face right. of the earth, and she's in that category. Um, so is that is that, is that the is wait? Let me ask this question though. It's a follow up with what you just sure. said. So is the funding the fact that there is a a bigger stream of funding and it's obviously a smaller geographic footprint there? The fact that the anti-trans philosophy is getting more play because it's better funded in the UK? Well, it's better funded because the Americans have dumped all sorts of money into it, in addition to their home grounds. It's not just Rowling that is directly responsible. Uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has been listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group, uh, has an international nonprofit funding arm. It's called the Alliance Defending Freedom International. And a long-term uh, investigative piece, which will be published shortly by a British journalist that I'm friends with, uh, Iwo Iwak, um, 
she has detailed the length and basically documented the old Watergate follow the money deep throat advice. Uh, and a lot of it's coming from Alliance Defending Freedom International and the World Congress of Families. And this is kind of the problem is that it's not just only the transphobia that was inherently already within the British society and culture, but pouring petrol on the fire was American money. And then, of course, rolling right. was kind of like the coup de grace, if you will, of that. Right. So speaking of money, that kind of plays into the case that we're going to be talking about today and the money that Ed Buck was generating, whether it was his or somebody else's, um, into the Democratic side of L.A. politics. Um, Brody, before I bring our guest on, I want to ask you, because you were editor of the L.A. Blade during the arc of this story, what is your perspective on the Ed Buck story? Well, first and foremost, I've got to give a shout-out to Los Angeles Blade columnist and contributing writer Jasmine Canick, uh, who I love to pieces. If it wasn't for Jasmine, uh, Ed Buck would not be sitting in a jail cell right now. The establishment and powers to be, including then Los Angeles uh, District Attorney um, and, and a few others, uh, they didn't do anything. I mean, it, it, they, they, people just kept giving Buck a pass. And, and Jasmine and uh, Jamel's mom and, and Timothy Dean's uh, family uh, were relentless. And Jasmine got her hands on Jamel's journal, which his mom uh, provided to her. And that became the basis for a honest-to-God you know, grassroots effort by Jasmine and other activists uh, to do something. And ultimately, um, I think what really, really helped was Jasmine enlisted the aid of a investigator with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who has a contract for police services in West Hollywood. This particular detective also happened to be part of a U.S. task force uh, and he went to the task force. He enlisted the aid of uh, the U.S. Justice Department and, more importantly, the U.S. Attorney for Los Angeles. And uh, that process, I believe, uh, and, and I've said this to Jasmine, uh, would not have happened without her. Uh, and Jasmine saw it through to the end. And, you know, now, you know, Buck is, you know, lightly sitting in that damn jail cell. The, the real tragedy is that, you know, he was a predator, and he was a predator for a long time. And there were there was enough, you know, backroom gossiping going on, enough people who knew about it, and, and nobody did anything. And, and I think that that's the real tragedy and the real lesson here. And I think that the other part of it was because Jamel and Mr. Dean uh, were black and because there was obviously, you know, a connection to um, – addiction, which played a significant role in this, uh, and the fact that a lot of sex workers, which Jamal was, uh, oftentimes, you know, even to have a safe place to sleep, uh, you know, there's a trade-off there. You know, there's a whole bunch of factors here that, quite frankly, the white establishment of West Hollywood ignored, or they looked the other way, and then that extended itself all the way down to the Hall of Justice, and the county did it. So shame on the county and shame on West Hollywood for that, and bless Jasmine for the work she did. 
She was amazing. Force of nature. I mean, I wrote articles about the case, but mine were very, quite frankly, Rob, clinical news, wire service style copy. The person who deserves the lion's share of credit for this one is Jasmine. Well, also deserving the lion's share of credit is our filmmaker and our guest today, uh, Michelle Thomas, and his new film, uh, Jamel and Tim, which really brings in the human element and really lets us know the two men who um, were killed and murdered um, through this case. So, Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure. I want, I want to step back a little bit from this case, though, to your career. Your work has all every. It seems like right out of the gate, you cause a sensation with everything you do. How did you start um, your filmmaking career, and, and particularly in documentaries? Well, actually, um, coincidence or not, that actually goes back to uh, Spirit Day and what it stands for. Um, I am originally from Belgium, um, and I came to Los Angeles in 2008 to study broadcasting. Um, the plan was just for one year and then go back to Belgium, but on day one I fell in love with the city and I knew um, that I wanted to stay. And um, I came out as gay. Um, within that first year in Los Angeles. And my coming out process went pretty smooth um, to family, friends, and, and everyone, and um, found a, also a, a chosen family. I love my uh, biological family, of course, um, but I f found a chosen family in, in the Gay Basketball League in, in Los Angeles. Um, so, yeah, my journey was great, but I noticed around me it, it wasn't. And, you know, I had friends who lost their scholarships uh, because they were, you know, student athletes and, and they found out they were gay. Um, and even, you know, I remember reading all these articles about all these young kids, like even 11 and 13 year olds killing themselves because they were bullied for being gay. And it was, it, it just, it, it affected me so much. Um, and especially at a point that one of my own friends, uh, unfortunately took his life. Um, and that really pushed me, you know, to, to think, okay, how can I make a difference? And um, I love sports. I love basketball. Um, but I'm, I'm a proud out gay man as well. So I wanted to bring those two worlds together and start telling the stories of LGBT athletes coming out. And not after their career, after the events, but really capture that coming out process of, to see, like, what they struggle with. And, um, and I focus and, and in the film Game Face, I focused on Fallon Fox, the first um, mixed martial arts fighter who came out as transgender. Um, and I also followed uh, Terrence Clements. He was a gay college basketball player in Oklahoma. So, and it's a parallel story because, you know, there's not one blueprint of how to come out. So it was important to me that there were more athletes featured um, to see the similarities, but also the differences um, what it means to come out, to, to create a better understanding for people to come out and also, you know, for other people to, to get a better understanding what LGBT people are going through. So that's pretty much how it all got started for me. It's, it is amazing because your work in, in the films, uh, it, 
particularly uh, Jamal and Tim, are so intimate and beautifully not, not only filmed, but the representation there and the heart behind them. There, I mean, literally watching that film, you fall in love with Jamel and Tim um, through the eyes of people who love them. And you put that, the film, up to those people to the level that, as the viewer, you, you feel their heart. But ironically, you're not like some distant, objective person being dropped in there. I mean, in the, in the case of this film, you are an intimate within not necessarily Tim himself, but his group of friends. They are your group of friends as well. Um, can you speak to being part of that group of friends and how that helped you or hindered you in telling his story and in telling Jamel's story? Uh, yes. I, uh, as I mentioned, I play basketball in the Gay Basketball League in Los Angeles, Lambda Basketball. And that's where uh, Tim used to play basketball as well, Timothy Dean. And I only met Tim a few times. Um, it's, it's, it's actually unbelievable. Every time I went to the gay games, he didn't go. And when he went to the gay games, I didn't go. Like, it's, it's, for some reason, we, we missed each other a lot in um, – you know, in, in our lives, but uh, but yeah, his best friends are my best friends, and um, I was aware of this story, you know, already many many years. Um, but it wasn't until, to be, like, I was working on on other projects when um, when this story was happening, and um, when I finished the project early 2000, uh, 2020, and that's also when the pandemic hit, and um, also, uh, when the Black Lives Matter movement like really amplified because of what happened with George Floyd and all these other horrible deaths, um, and I joined a couple of marches and you know really questioned myself: How can I contribute um, into this fight for social justice? And so I was looking for a story, and especially in Los Angeles because I couldn't travel um, because of COVID, and I didn't have to look very far because. I immediately thought of, of this story of, of what happened with Tim and, and Jamel, but I wasn't going to do it if um, I didn't get the blessing from uh, Tim's friends. So I mm -hmm. reached out to them first um, to, you know, to, to talk about the idea of doing a documentary about it and, and their thoughts. And once I got their blessing, um, you know, that's when, that's when the ball started rolling and, um, you know, you mentioned Jasmine Canick. She was, uh, this, after my friend, she was the first one who I reached out to because of all the great work that she has done. Um, it's like you said, without Jasmine Canick, uh, Ed Buck would still be um, in his apartment uh, doing all these horrible right. things. So all credit goes um, to her. Um, you know, she also clarified that she's working on her own project. She, she's working on a documentary project, also writing a book, and, you know, rightfully so. I can't wait to see what she comes up with. So I absolutely, um, you know, respected her choice not to be part of this project. Um, but I'm very happy that I was able to include her work through um, archival footage of news reports and also all these other friends of Jim Ellington um, who – only spoke highly about her because again it's it's incredible the work that she has done um, for this fight 
Right. No, absolutely. Um, in the circle you were in, when um, Tim was killed, what what had you heard? What was your first, you know, word of mouth information about what had gone down? Um, I don't really recall the first, but I do remember we had a basketball tournament in um, Los Angeles. And um, and we had, you know, many of Tim's friends were there, of course. And uh, after the tournament, we went out to the gay bars um, to enjoy the uh, the end of the tournament. And uh, we always get together. It's it's a lot of fun. And at one point, um, I remember Ed Buck came to the bar, and some of my friends they just became furious, but also became very protective because they knew other friends of Tim, you know, they would do something to Ed Buck if they would see him in, in real in real life. So we, we just wanted to make sure that, um, you know, no accidents were going to happen or um, we, we just wanted to protect our friends and to like make sure uh, that he was going to be okay and not flip out pretty much. Um, and which we did, we we found him, and and afterwards we didn't we didn't see him again. But that was just, um, you know, a, a a horrible feeling to see him out there to see, you know, like. And this is after Tim, Tim passed, like to just come to the right. basketball community that he that he just damaged and, um, you know, hurt so much. It was just awful to see him out, and like like nothing's going on. Like he just he could not stop what he was doing. So um, that was definitely one of the moments um, that I remember very vividly. One of the the things that um, Brody mentioned at the top um, about this case where people tend to be or tended to be dismissive of it is because there's sort of this drug addiction environment story about it. Um, one of the things that I took away from the film was more a perception that drug there was a drug escalation, not that, that the people that, that Buck was um, enticing in were opposed to drugs, but they were not nearly the drug users coming into it as they were through his fetish-type games. Um, what What is your perception on that? And what other things were about this case um, publicly um, in, the, in the public media that you see as misperceptions? Um, well, I think, especially at the beginning, the biggest frustration was that the voices were not heard and that this story no one cared in the media, unfortunately. Um, and it was because of, you know, blogs and, and, and columns of Jasmine and the publishing of the, uh, of the um, diary um, that started making noise. Um, all the way, uh, sorry, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in New York and uh, <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, but... Um, but um, so yeah, uh, hold on one second. No problem. Um, it, 
can you can you ask a follow up question? Sorry, I got a little bit distracted because someone started yeah, calling no, behind just, me. Uh, yeah, the the um, there were perceptions, and and you spoke to a little bit of it, where um, the victims in this case, uh, Jamel and Tim, you know, as things were reported about it, uh, they were seen as you know, well, um, Ed Buck, um, two black men died uh, at the hands of Ed Buck. Boom. Um, to juxtapose that to other media stories where a blonde young woman gets disappears or uh, Shonda Levy, um, you know, disappears running in the park. You know, the story focuses so much on these young, beautiful women and who they were and, you know, their likes, their dislikes and, you know, their habits and everything else where, you know, two black men are just, you know, given a sentence and, and, and are not known. Um, so I'm wondering about, yes. yeah, yeah, what, what isn't told in the media and what, what in the initial reporting this story were absolute falsehoods or misperceptions? Um, well, for example, you know, in some of the media headlines, all, the focus was always on, prostitute, sex worker, even with Tim, porn star. And with Ed Buck, it was, you know, political donor, all the uh, political activists, uh, HIV act- activists, LGBT activists, animal rights activists, like all these great things that Ed Buck had done, that was written about him, but not about his felonies in the past, his racial accusations from the past. None of that was written about, but all the dirty laundry from the victims was put out there without telling anything positive about them. And so that was the big frustration from family and friends, how they were labeled uh, in the media. And, I mean, it's understandable that the media, like that an article only has so many characters that you can post still, you know, like it was just a lot of one-sided and, and very bad labeling that was going on. And I've also felt, you know, when I wanted to do um, this project, at first I had a whole list of, of people I wanted to interview and wanted to reach out to, but it was, you know, after the first interviews, it just became very clear that the people that I highlighted were the people who were not given a platform yet, and their voices deserve to be heard. So I wanted mm-hmm. to give them as much time as I could, and that's why it was very important to to have the point of view of the people who loved and knew Tim um, to to show the full story and and but also not shy away from what happened, but it's really the good, the bad, and the ugly, like everyone's life, um, and because that's that's what they deserve. One of the things, uh, and it wasn't a big deal, but in the film, um, there's a council person who. Um, did not get money from Ed Buck, but her whole opening statement was how she did not get money from Ed Buck. Um, and there's this whole element of, you know, if you are a person, um, presumably white, but might not even matter, but you're a funder where, and we were just talking about this with the JK Rowling thing. It's like where, how much is money talking? You know, that, that, that is buying your persona and the people who, like Jamel and Tim, who had no money funding to the people who were going to both find justice 
as well as tell his story, um, you know, we're not going to get influenced by. Yeah, I think, you know, also at the beginning, um, Ed Buck was, was well known. And I think that with a lot of people, he just got the benefit of the doubt. Um, and it wasn't until, I mean, some politicians didn't uh, distance themselves from Ed Buck until Tim died. Like it, it literally took two people for some politicians to say, okay, you know what, <laughs> I shouldn't be associating myself with um, with Ed Buck. But in regards to, you know, the, the, the donations, the political donations and, and the effect that that has, you know, some opinions are also different about that. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to push a narrative um, in the film. So it was also important for, you know, for like some friends of Jamel and Tim um, think, you know, the money did influence um, these politicians to protect them. And some don't. They just think that it is just a, just a system that protected Ed Buck, not specifically individuals, uh, but just a system that it, it is designed to protect people like him. Um, so, yeah, I... I wanted to give an overview of, of some of the political donations he has made, but it kind of leaves an open door of, you know, did or did it not have a big influence um, in uh, if, if that protected him, yes or no. Yeah. So you, um, obviously, like we said, you were, you know, you weren't personally too distant from, you know, Tim and Joel's world, you know, in terms of your, your extended chosen family. Um, as you've got people in front of the camera, whose, whose um, viewpoint and story and perception affected you the most? Whew, that's so hard, to, so hard to say. But what was interesting to me was, how grief comes in different forms and in different ways. And that was another important reason to, you know, to really let everyone talk because some people turn into activists. Some people need to take time away and they, they just can't be involved with the fight because it's just too, it's just too much. Some people feel vindicated after, you know, Ed Buck was uh, arrested and taken to jail and other people, you know, it's, they say like it didn't do anything to me because it's still not going to bring my friend back. There's so many layers and, and, and ways to grief. So that was um, very, very interesting to, um, to, to witness. Um, but I also, you know, noticed very quickly. Um, I mean, my first interview was with uh, Jerome, Jerome Kitchen. And, um, I mean, he's been there on the front line since the beginning and just talking with him, I think for more than four hours was the interview and it was just, it was unbelievable. And it's, um, I still thank him. Like, I'm so grateful that he opened this and, and opened those old wounds, um, again, like on camera to talk about this. Um, and I'm so grateful that everyone opened, opened up to me and, uh, but I also noticed pretty quickly that whenever I was doing interviews, I had to take some time also for myself to plan in a hike or go to the beach to, to clear my mind because, you know, some of these interviews got really draining and, and, and it affects you. I mean, I've cried so many times editing the film. Um, 
So it's uh, it it definitely affects you. And you can see that in the art of the film itself, your your emotion. I mean, as a filmmaker, and ha- what you weave together creates that that heartfelt um, remnants um, for as as a viewer. So I mean, absolute kudos on that. And I can see why that would be, you know, a tough thing for you to even be shouldering personally. Um, in your own perception. And what you learned of Jamel and Tim through the voice of other people, um, who were they to you? Tell me who Jamel was. Tell me who Tim was um, to you now. Um, well, I'm going to reiterate uh, some of the words that uh, Jamel's friends and, and also Jamel's mom mentioned. Uh, you know, Jamel was a, a jokester, a fun person. Um, yeah, also very private, um, but he was a real family person. He was a big brother to his big brothers and sisters, and he really cared about them and had a special bond uh, with them. He was he was a mama's boy, uh, but he, like he also you know sometimes they bump heads, but who doesn't as a teenager um, at the time? But um, he was very beloved and, and very uh, mischievous and. Um, uh, very loved within his community and, and in the ballroom scene um, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and just, he was, he had friends everywhere in, in the country. He had friends in, in LA, he had friends in New York and Miami. He'd love to go to New York and Miami. Um, so he was just a great personality all around. And he had big dreams of, of going to school and, and being successful. And um, yeah, so he was, a very layered and compartment, compartmentalized person, but uh, a great individual. And, and as for Tim, um, he was, uh, you know, came from a small town, but it became very quickly that that small town was way too small. He needed to be on the biggest stage, and he wanted to come to L.A. and um, and work in fashion. Like, that was his big dream, and... Um, he went to school and ended up working for Texas Avenue um, and uh, worked in Beverly Hills, uh, was asked to design celebrities, new celebrities. Like, he was, he was actually, the moment that he died, he was, he was doing great in life. So that's, that's what's so unfortunate, um, what happened. And, and, you know, the true sadness of, of what addiction can do, like one week moment, how that can derail everything again. Um, but, uh, and of course, like he loved basketball and he was really good at it. Um, he was tall, he was big, he was loud. He was, um, uh, they, they called him TND too much drama because he was always so loud and extra <laughs> extravagant like Dennis Rotman, uh, like Dennis Rotman on the <laughs> basketball court, uh, also painted his hair and everything. So, um, he was, he was the life of the party. So, you know, two, two incredible beautiful individuals and, and those sides of the story deserve to be told as well um, with, you know, besides everything that happened. Yeah, no, super important. Um, I also want to ask you uh, your perception. I'm sure you're aware of the most recent racial debacle of LA politics um, with the, the recording that happened and all that. 
Um, what what reflection do you have on that situation with the handling of the Ed Buck case um, and kind of well, the racial prejudice backdrop? It's interesting that the name of Kevin Dillion came up in that case because um, he was also affiliated to um, Ed Buck, and if I re- recall well, like received more than $25,000 of, of donations from Ed Buck. And um, while a lot of politicians um, returned Ed Buck's uh, money or gave it to LGBT causes, um, he didn't. And uh, always, you know, and he even publicly lied. He said he did, but he didn't. And um, so, you know, that this is coming uh, and that he's involved with something like this, it's, you know, um, it doesn't come as a surprise from all the things that I've heard um, that like how he did not take his responsibility or his stance. You know, like there's one thing about giving giving the money back and, and not having anything to say. But um, I also remember, for example, Karen Bass, like she was very outspoken about this from the beginning. And she said, you know, justice needs to be served and Ed Buck needs to be arrested and, and held accountable for what he did. We needed, we needed politicians to do that, take a stand. And they didn't. They sh- they shied away, and it's and it looks like Kevin DeLeon doesn't want to take his responsibility in this case now. He still doesn't want to resign, and um, it's it's very unfortunate, but it's it's the truth. So the truth came out, and um, people have to take consequences about that. No, definitely, we need cleanliness in in their intent, and if they are going to present themselves as progressive, they need to be progressive. And um, we, we really shouldn't have any tolerance for, for this. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because um, we're running a little bit out of time, and I do want to focus on this aspect. Where is the film, where is the film now in terms of the uh, film festival set, and uh, where, where is it going? Um, the film screened, it's still on the film festival circuit. It's screened in more than 35 film festivals in uh, the U.S., in Canada, and, and in Europe. Um, we're also working together with uh, drug prevention companies and LGBT companies, organizations, um, you know, and uh, we're trying to bring this film into the uh, school educational system as well to you know, because we really made this film, of course, to honor the lives of Jamel and Tim, but we also want to prevent this from happening again. Um, and um, so that's that's pretty much what we've been doing the last year. And now since uh, Tuesday, since Tuesday of this week, the film is also available on iTunes and Apple TV, Google Play, uh, uh, Prime Video, and on uh, YouTube, so people can rent or buy the video there, uh, the film there. So, you know, it's very exciting that that is the next step for the film, that people can also just watch it um, at home. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody listening to do that, to get the film, to view it. Um, It is, despite the background of it, it is actually very warm and moving um, where you get to know these two people, um, Jamel and Tim, and, and, and feel for them. And, and you get to, in a very small sense, have them in your life and understand the, the full dynamics of everything that happened with them. Um, 
uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. What haven't we talked about um, on this case that uh, we need to? Um, well, I could not have made this film, of course, without the people who are in it, but also behind the scenes. Um, I worked together with uh, producer Michael Franklin, um, who also co-produced um, my previous film, That's Wild, and he was also connected to uh, Jamel's friends, and he, you know, he made that connection there. Um, and uh, so he has been fantastic. He's been my ride or die um, <laughs> pretty much uh, throughout my work. So um, big kudos to him. And uh, editor Neek Lewis, uh, she's from New York. She's an uh, out and proud uh, black lesbian woman. Very talented editor, also a member of the ballroom community. So their input for this project has been, you know, vital and, and, and so important. And then um, the animator. Uh, animation was uh, animator Ramian Dow. Um, animation was very important in this film because, you know, we don't show crystal mess once in the film. And that was very important to us. We didn't want this film to be a trigger for people who are dealing with addiction. And that's why, you know, animation also for some of the things that happen inside Ed Buck's apartment, we don't, we didn't want to exploit or sensationalize those crimes. And, and that's where animation was such a, a grateful creative tool to use and to, you know, to bring those moments to life in a creative way and a respectful way. Um, so, yeah. So I, again, I could not have done that without them and, um, it, it literally was a, a teamwork. No, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, which film, that's one of the wonders of filmmaking, even documentary filmmaking, is that it is, it has to be a team effort, and that, that brings a, a lot of the elements together, um, makes them very nuanced and, and wonderful. So, yeah, the, that is, is tremendous. How do people follow you personally and, and watch what is coming next? From you. Um, well, best way is through Instagram. That is my first name and last name number six. So that is Michael Thomas. But Michael is spelled M-I-C-H-I-E-L, and then Thomas T-H-O-M-A-S, and then number six. Or they can go to my website, MichaelThomas.com. Uh, that's where you can also access um, the other films and other work that I did. Um, and the film can be followed also on social media as, um, at, at Jamel and Tim. So, yeah. Is, is, and, and is spelled out in that? A-N-D? Yes, and is spelled out. Yes, A-N-D. Okay. Yeah. But the, the fun of social media and, and, and the nomenclature you use. Um, what yeah. is, uh, Michael, what, what do you have lined up next? Do you have a new project that you're... Um, looking towards or still just focused on Jamel and Tim? Uh, uh, no, I'm uh, currently working on a new documentary project. It's actually going to be a series. Um, unfortunately, I have to keep my lips sealed um, about <laughs> it, but um, you know how that goes, unfortunately. But it's it's great. It's, it's, it's again, a very, um, you know, it's a subject that's close to my heart. Um, and uh, that I that I care about a lot. Otherwise, I couldn't do it. And the great relief for me, as well as this, is you know I was hired to do this to do this next project. 
the other films have always been, you know, self-produced and finding funding and it's it's so tough independent filmmaking. So it's it's kind of a relief to be hired for a, to get hired for a project um and mostly focus on the on the creative side of it. So um that's been a nice uh some nice uh fresh air. <laughs> No, so definitely. Well, while, while making a film, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. keep us posted on that because it, it, I, I, I'm guessing it's going to be very pertinent. And the fact that you feel passionately about it um, is is uh, already an um, authorization on it right up front. Um, I do want to ask Brody really quick because Brody was so involved in the story uh, through its appearance in the media. Brody, do you have any questions before we uh, head out today? I I think that at the end of the day, no, actually I don't. Uh, I, I'm one of these people that when I, you know, encounter independent filmmakers uh, like Michelle and, and they do such a wonderful job uh, of telling these stories that gives nuance and context that a lot of times um, as journalists, we just simply don't have the ability to do that uh and so i'm going to recommend to our audience um go watch this film uh it's an incredibly important story especially these days um and congratulations uh sir on a job well done thank you so much and thank you for all your work uh you know reporting about this case and you know and working closely with jasmine so like i said she has done amazing work and um I thank you for, you know, shining a light on this case when, when it was needed. So appreciate so, um, that. I really do. Mikhail, one, one last question. If uh, Jamel or Tim could give voice to what happened as a cautionary tale, um, what would they want to tell people? Oh boy, that's such a hard question. Um, you know, cause I, I, I think back of, what Jerome said that, you know, Jamel would have hated to be associated with um, this story. But at the end of the day, like it was, it was just necessary. And, and um, you know, I think if this story just can save one life, I think that then it's, then it's, then it's worth it. I think that's, that's, that's the whole point that that's, that's why we made this film. And, um, and I think that's, that's what they would want as well. Um, yeah. Do you think people in West Hollywood are more cautious about predatory, particularly predatory men of wealth than they were before? Um, I hope so. I think, I mean, one of the things that I did learn was that the sheriff's department uh, did change one of their protocols that after um, an overdose case, um, in the past, they, they did not look into a potential foul play, and they just, you know, take it on as an as a, as a overdose. And that's also one of the things that went wrong in this case, uh, as far as, as evidence and not having a warrant for it. Um, so one of their new protocols is whenever there is an overdose case, they have to do an, a, a, a prelimin, preliminary investigation to see if there's any case of foul play. So I am happy that that is a new protocol that, that can help prevent these situations from happening again. Um, now it's a matter of, you know, enforcing it. 
um, and not making any mistakes because, you know, the Sheriff's Department did make mistakes in this case. Um, at the beginning, uh, like once, you know, once that buck was uh, arrested, they were very cooperative. But prior to that, a lot of mistakes were happening. So I hopefully, right. you know, everyone, everyone um, learned from this. And, uh, yeah, this, this doesn't have to happen in the future. Well, that is, that is the goal. And um, thank you for putting the added perspective of understanding who this happened to. Um, these are real, very dynamic men um, whose lives were cut short tragically, and um, they, they should be honored as such. So thank you for everything you do. You're, you know, you're bringing um, vision to individuals that might not be seen and whose stories are vitally important. And it is very exciting to see what, what you are going to come up with next and and exciting to see where this film goes and, and the effect it has in our general consciousness. Um, and, and most importantly, fighting racism behind the scenes and in the systems that um, have supported it for so long. So I want to thank you again Absolutely. for coming on today. And uh, I want to thank Brody for his work. Um, Brody's work can be seen at the Los Angeles Blade dot com um, that is the news magazine that you should check out every single day and i want to thank you for our team here we will be back again next week with another great show no idea what it will be about but it will be great i can <laughs> promise you that and we will talk to you then you've been listening to rated lgbt radio 